The difficulty for a preacher with a passage like this, a parable like this one, is basically this parable tells the story of the whole Bible. And so how can you preach this parable without preaching the whole Bible? Uh, that's the challenge in front of us this morning. So what I'm going to ask you to do uh, is buckle your seatbelt and hang on tight as we go for this ride. Uh, but before we do that, let us pray and ask God's help. Father, we do ask that you would speak to us and we ask that you would help us by your grace and through working faith in us to receive your word, to not be like the ancient Israelites who rejected your word and rejected your messengers, but that you might help us to receive your truth, that we might believe it and obey it and cling to it as our very life. This we pray in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. We all love a battle of wits, don't we? Uh, where somebody gets insulted, but they're able to come back with some kind of sharp or clever remark uh, that sort of silences things, you know, sort of uh, drop the mic kind of moment. We love those battle battles of wits, uh, don't we? Uh, one of my favorite is the back and forth between Lady Nancy Astor and Winston Churchill. Uh, the Lady Astor didn't much care for Churchill. And the feelings of dislike were mutual. Uh, once they were at a party together, and Lady Astor said to Churchill, Winston, if you were my husband, I would poison your tea. Churchill replied, Madam, if I was your husband, I would drink it. In that battle of wits, Churchill obviously had the upper hand. In this part of Mark's Gospel, as Jesus has now come to Jerusalem, uh, we really enter into a battle of wits between Jesus and the Jewish leadership. It is a contest of wisdom. Who has the greater wisdom, Jesus or the Jewish leadership? Repeatedly, the Jewish leaders come to test Jesus. They try to trap him. Uh, they set these traps for him. They want to trap him in his words. And yet, repeatedly, Jesus evades their traps. He outsmarts them. Indeed, he catches them in their own traps. In this continual battle of wits and wisdom, Jesus wins. But it's really important in this section of Mark's Gospel to see what these controversies and these clashes are really all about. See, these wisdom contests really center around the greatest controversies uh, of the day in Israel. These wisdom contests really center around Israel's symbols and Israel's story. Israel's symbols and Israel's story. Worldviews and identities are really made up of symbols and stories. Let's talk about these for just a minute. We've already seen Jesus and the priests spar over Israel's central symbol, which was, of course, the temple. The temple and its rituals defined Israel as a unique people. The temple and its rituals symbolized what Israel was all about. Every culture is defined by its symbols. Every culture has some kind of symbolic system or a symbolic universe that gives it its identity, that gives it its meaning and its purpose. Think about this in our own culture, our own country. If you wanted to explain to somebody what it means to be an American, you could certainly pull out our Constitution and our Declaration of Independence and you could teach them about our system of government and what it means to be an American from those documents. But another way to explain America would be to take your inquirer on a tour of our symbols, 
our national monuments that symbolize our identity and our history, especially these architectural symbols that bind us together as a nation that explain and summarize what America is all about. So you could show them the Statue of Liberty. And you could take them to see the Liberty Bell at Independence Hall. You could take them to the Washington Monument and the Lincoln Memorial and the Capitol Building and the White House and perhaps the bull out in front of Wall Street. Uh, you could show them the American flag. That's certainly a symbol. And you could explain why it has 13 stripes and 50 stars. See, all of these symbols are iconic. They explain what our nation is all about. Why and how we exist as a people. Now, if you could take all of those symbols, if you could take all of those American symbols and fold them into one mega symbol, that would be what the temple was to Israel's identity. The temple embodied Israel's beliefs. The temple embodied Israel's values. Her hopes and her dreams were tied up in the temple. The temple tied together Israel's past and Israel's future. Indeed, this is why so much of the Old Testament is given to describing the tabernacle and the temple. They are symbolic representations of the people. What Israel is, what Israel is supposed to be, is manifest in the temple structure, in its architecture, in its furnishings, in its color, in what happened there. The temple shows this is what makes Israel, Israel. The temple summarizes Israel's history. It sums up her mission as a people. And so in the just preceding scene at the end of Mark chapter 11, when Jesus goes into the temple, and He shuts the temple down. And He cleanses the temple. What is He doing? He's really striking right at the heart of what makes Israel Israel. He's striking right at the heart of Israel's identity. By cleansing the temple, He's showing He's got an alternative vision for Israel's future. He's going to transform Israel's most fundamental symbols. And indeed, this is why they're so angry with Jesus. Angry enough to kill Him. In Mark chapter 11, Jesus challenges their central symbol, the temple. We've already looked at that. In Mark chapter 12, He challenges their basic story. And it leads to a similar result. In the parable of the wicked vine dressers, Jesus tells the story of Israel, but from an alternate point of view, from a rival perspective. Now when it comes to worldviews and cultures and identities, stories are just as important as symbols. Every culture is defined in some way by a story. Sometimes philosophers call these grand stories meta-narratives. You don't need to know that word. You just know this from your own experience. We can't help but narrate our experience. We can't help but experience reality and experience life in story form. And this is true at the individual level, but it's also true of cultural, of, of cultures. It's true at the cultural Level. We tell stories about where we came from and where we're going. We use these stories to make sense out of reality. We can't help but understand the world in terms of stories and sub-stories. The story we see ourselves in and the place we have in that story determines our outlook. You know, what we call Western civilization, 
uh, was basically a civilization that defined itself in terms of the story of Jesus and His kingdom, Jesus and His church. That's what held Western civilization together. That's what gave it its, its outlook and its worldview and its cohesion as a civilization. That, that kingdom story flowing out of the Gospel. I think you could say today that the chief story uh, that defines our culture is probably the story of Darwinian evolution. And as that story, the story of Darwinian evolution, has displaced the story of Jesus and His kingdom, I think you can look around and see the disastrous results that's had as we've traded one story for another. Well, Israel had a story, and Israel was defined by her story. And her story was very much tied to her land, her place in the promised land. Her story included entering that land under Moses in the Exodus, conquering that land in the conquest under Joshua. They were driven out of that land in the exile, the curse, the punishment that fell upon them, and they had then returned to their land in a promised restoration. Though even in that restoration, they remained under the lordship of a pagan empire, which meant that Israel's story had not yet turned out the way it was supposed to. Indeed, the very next episode, the very next controversy Jesus and his uh, opponents take up is paying taxes to this foreign empire, to this pagan empire that rules over them. That's the next controversial issue they'll deal with because that's where they are in the story. Israelites understood themselves in terms of this story. Israelites agreed that theirs was a story in search of an ending. And by the time Jesus arrived on the scene, because of the promises God had made through the prophets, most Jews were expecting something dramatic and climactic to happen. What they didn't seem to expect is the way Jesus would twist the ending of their story in a shocking way. See, in one sense, the conflict Jesus has with the Jewish leadership is over how Israel's story should go. How the final chapter will be written. What shape will this covenant story have from here on out? That's what the conflict is all about. Now, remember, at the start of Mark chapter 12, Jesus is still speaking to the priests and the scribes and the elders. It says He began to speak to them in parables in verse 1, that refers you back to the immediately preceding conversation, which was with the priests and the scribes and the elders of Israel. And in fact, he's still in the temple precincts. This conversation had started to happen as he was approaching the temple. These Jewish leaders had just tried to corner Jesus with a question about his authority. By what authority did he take over the temple on the preceding day? By what authority did he cleanse the temple and shut the temple down momentarily? And he answers their question about authority with a riddle they can't solve. And now he goes on to tell them a story. And indeed, Mark calls this story a parable. Now that's important. If you go back to Mark chapter 4, where Jesus first begins teaching in parables, you find that parables are not the equivalent of modern-day sermon illustrations. You know, if a preacher uses an illustration today, it's intended to reveal the truth, to help you remember the truth, to open your mind up to the truth in some kind of way. Parables aren't exactly like that. Parables are dark stories. They are extended metaphors that function as riddles that increase the wisdom of the faithful as they meditate on them, but harden the hearts of the proud. 
Parables are puzzles. Now, in this particular case, the puzzle's not that hard to figure out. It's not that hard to put the pieces together. What is interesting, and I think what makes this really a parable, is the effect that it has on those who hear it. Consider this. Jesus tells a story that ends with a bunch of stewards who want to kill the son of the master. Well, right after Jesus tells this story, what happens? The chief priests want to seize Jesus, the son, and kill him. It's obvious what this story is about. It exposes the desire of the Jewish leadership to kill Jesus, and it actually intensifies their desire to kill him. So that unwittingly, by hearing this story, they want to fulfill their part in the story. Hearing this story makes them want to play their part in the story. It's like they say to Jesus, Jesus, you've just told a story about us wanting to kill you, and so now we really want to kill you. He's making public their private conspiracy against Him so that they will actually do what they have conspired to do. Their reaction proves who they are in the parable and who He is in the parable. Uh, Parables aren't necessarily allegories where you're looking for a one-to-one correspondence between everything in the parable and something in reality, something in history. But in this particular parable, it is hard to resist looking for what you might call allegorical connections. Uh, Because the story Jesus tells in the parable and the story Mark is telling in His Gospel match up so well. The story of the parable mirrors the plot of Mark's Gospel. This parable is a story within a story, and it is a story that explains the story. This parable, this story Jesus tells, explains the story Mark is telling in his Gospel. It really explains the story of the whole Bible. See, it's a story in a story that explains the story, what it's all about. Now, Jesus didn't start from scratch. Uh, Jesus actually takes uh, the materials, you could say, the story materials, uh, from the Song of the Vineyard in Isaiah chapter 5. He takes Isaiah's story, Isaiah's song in Isaiah 5 about Israel, and he adapts it and reworks it for his own purposes. And it's easy to see uh, what's going on in this story. Obviously, the vineyard owner is God the Father, the vineyard itself is Israel. In fact, it's interesting, in the Song of Solomon, uh, the bride is called a vineyard. And so you might say that if Israel is God's vineyard, Israel is also God's bride. The hedge or the wall built around the vineyard is the law that separated Israel from the nations, that set up boundaries for Israel, that, that, that separated Israel from the Gentiles. The tower, no doubt, is the temple. Uh, the wine press or wine vat most likely refers to the altar where blood flowed from the sacrifices that were offered just as the blood of grapes flowed at the wine press. The vine dressers are obviously the priests of Israel, the leadership in Israel. And the servants, the master's sins, are the prophets and the son is Jesus. Those are the basic characters, the basic features of this story. Now what happens? The master plants this vineyard. He plants this garden. Uh, The master puts vine dressers to work in his vineyard. They will be his stewards or his tenants. And then he goes away. So the Lord of the vineyard entrusts everything to them. 
and he leaves them, but with the expectation that he will come back looking for fruit. He will come back to gather fruit. They will work the vineyard for him and he will claim its fruit. He'll share some of it with them, of course, but it will belong to him. Now, this is actually a common pattern in Scripture. God built a garden for Adam in the beginning. In Genesis 2, God builds a garden for Adam. He puts Adam in the garden to steward it. And then God leaves. God is the Lord of the garden because it's His. He puts Adam in it to take care of it. And then God goes away. And He leaves Adam with instructions to guard and tend the garden. God left him to do His work. And of course, the intention was that God would come back and gather the fruit of it as Adam tended to the garden and cultivated. So what God does with Israel in this parable is really a microcosm of what He does with humanity. Israel is a new humanity in a new garden. Israel is a new Adamic race and their land is a new garden of Eden. The vineyard of Israel is obviously God's property. The stewards are accountable to Him. He will again share the produce with them. But it is His. He can inspect it and He can collect it whenever He desires. Well, the time comes for Him to get what is His, uh, to get some of the fruit from the vineyard. And so He sends servants. And what happens? These servants are continually either beaten or killed. In fact, when the first servant comes, it says they sent Him away empty-handed. In other words, the vine dressers are fruit thieves. They steal the fruit that belongs to another and keep it for themselves. They take fruit that belongs to the Lord and they seize it for themselves. That may make us think of another fruit thief in the Bible. Of course, Adam is the original fruit thief in the Garden of Eden. Might also make us think of wicked King Ahab who stole a vineyard from the innocent and godly and faithful man, Naboth. Jesus is saying, this is what the priests are like. You're like Adam when he stole fruit in the garden. You're like Ahab when he stole the vineyard from Naboth. Verse 4 says of these servants that uh, of one of them, they struck him on the head. Okay, Some of the prophets, according to Jewish legend, were stones. There may be a reference to that here. But there's also a servant here who is given a head wound. This may even be an allusion to John the Baptist who was beheaded. Now, that would be a little bit out of order because John the Baptist is the last of the servants that God sends before the Son. But it still could be some kind of uh, connection. What is this parable? This is the history of Israel since God planted the nation. It's really not any different than the kinds of things that the prophets say to Israel again and again. Israel's history is a story of rebellion. Uh, Psalm 80 makes this same point. It records this same kind of history. Psalm 80 says Israel was like a vine the Lord brought out of Egypt and planted, but then it laments that she has not been fruitful. And so what will God do? God must judge her. Israel continually rejected the Lord's servants. She refused to give God what is rightfully His. There's this stream of prophets who are sent, but they're just like lambs being sent to the slaughter. And again, if you look at Israel's history, you see this is true. Look at how they treated Moses and Jeremiah and Elijah and Isaiah and the rest of the prophets. No prophet in Israel was ever treated well. Jeremiah says in Jeremiah 7, from the day your fathers came out of Egypt to this day, I have sent you my servants, the prophets, 
yet you did not obey them. In 2 Chronicles 36, says the Lord sent you messengers, but you mocked them and despised their words. In Nehemiah chapter 9, it's the same thing. Uh, he accuses the people. He says, you cast God's law behind your backs and you have killed the prophets. So the Lord of the vineyard sends this steady stream of, of servants, of messengers who come to get what is rightfully the Lord's. They beat them. They kill them. They reject them. Well, finally in the parable, the master of the vineyard says, well, I will send them my son, my beloved. Surely they will respect him. Now, what do you think about that reasoning? You know, we, we kind of get the reasoning of the Master here. What do you think about that reasoning? I think it seems pretty crazy. <laughs> Why would the Master think that if He sends His Son, His Son will fare any better? This is crazy. It's the craziness of grace. But it is crazy. You know, no farm owner in his right mind would send his son after having had all his other representatives mistreated. All those others who were sent to collect their rent or to collect the produce, they were all beaten or killed. What farm owner in his right mind would say, oh, well, I'll just send my son. No farm owner would do that. It's way too dangerous. And no son would volunteer for that kind of mission. It'd be a suicide mission. Way too risky to go to vine dressers or to tenants like this. I mean, if you own a, 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 an apartment building, you sent somebody to collect rent, and every single time the guy you sent to collect rent got beaten up or stoned or stabbed with a knife, you wouldn't say, oh, I'll just send my son over to the apartment building. You'd say, no, that apartment building's not safe anymore. What is this? This is grace. This is a father who wants to give his people one more chance. This is a son who in grace wants to plead with the people by showing them his father's love. This is the grace of the father and the son. So the master sends his beloved son and what happens? Well, it's predictable. The tenants say, let us kill him and we can seize the inheritance for ourselves. Now there's such an important echo to pick up on here. I said we're going to do the whole Bible. Well, this is the kind of thing you really got to pick up on. When they say, let us kill him, those words come straight out of Genesis 37. Where Joseph's brothers, out of jealousy of the beloved son Joseph, say, let us kill him. Joseph was sent out by his father to check on his brothers. To inspect his brothers. And his brothers despised him, this messenger of their father. And so they said, let us kill him. Let us kill Joseph. And then they figure they can claim his inheritance for themselves. Now, they don't actually go through it. They sell him into slavery. But they had a murderous intention, a murderous plot against Joseph. What the brothers said against Joseph is exactly what the tenants say here against the son. Now, this aspect of the story, this part of the story, shows that Jesus knew exactly who He was and why He had come. Who is He? He's the greater Joseph. More than that, He's the Son of God sent by His Father. In fact, this really answers the question in the preceding story in Mark chapter 11. Where does Jesus get His authority? Where does His authority come from? Well, clearly His authority comes from heaven. His authority comes from God the Father who sent Him. The same Lord who created Israel as a people and gave Israel her land. That God 
That's the one who gives Jesus His authority. Jesus is the Son of that God. The Creator and Lord of Israel. And Jesus knows this about Himself. He's not going to be caught off guard by any of this. He knows who He is and what He's come to do. But this also shows us that Israel's leaders know who Jesus is. And they are jealous and they hate Him for it. They know Jesus is the rightful King. They know He is the Son. And yet they want to commandeer Israel for their own purposes. They want to bend Israel to serve their own purposes. They want to keep the land and the temple for themselves. And so what are they going to do? They're going to kill the Son. Why would they do this? Well, for one thing, the temple had become quite a cash cow for them by this point. In fact, that's something Jesus is going to address at the very end of this chapter. When the widow throws her last mite into the temple treasury, we see that the temple had become a a great source of income and wealth for Israel's leadership. See, both Jesus and the priests knew that Israel was coming to her climactic moment in history. They knew that their conflict with each other was really a battle for Israel's future. And they each knew that they had rival visions for that future. Alternative visions of what Israel should do and be the meaning of Israel and how her story should go. What does Jesus want? Jesus wants a people who will give fruit to God and to the nations. What do the priests want? The priests want to take all the fruit of Israel for themselves. Now, of course, because Jesus is the new Joseph, what they need for evil, God will use for good and for the salvation of many. But this is not going to stop them. They're going to go through with their plot to kill the son. Now, once they've killed the son, the owner of the vineyard is going to kill them. He's going to take eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth kind of vengeance against them. He's going to destroy the tenants. But note, he does not destroy the vineyard. Instead, he gives it to others. Well, who are the others he gives it to? Well, I think the rest of the New Testament answers that question for us. He gives it to the disciples of Jesus. He gives it to the apostles. They're the new tenants, the new caretakers. And of course, they in turn will entrust the care of the Lord's vineyard, the church, to pastors and elders. Pastors and elders are now stewards of God's vineyard. Called to care for and cultivate God's people. God's people are a new Israel. The church is a new Israel. Now a few things to note about this parable before we move on to how Jesus concludes this passage. Throughout Scripture, people are compared to different kinds of plants. Plants symbolize and represent people. Different kinds of people. Therefore, people are supposed to produce fruit for God. That's why we live. That's why we exist. To produce fruit for God. We're supposed to bear fruit. We're supposed to produce fruit that is good for God and others to eat. We're to be a garden full of good food that blesses others. That's what the church is to be. What was there in the Garden of Eden? There was free food. This beautiful, flourishing garden. A place of life. And a place of feasting. That's what the church is to be. A garden full of free food that blesses others. What form does that fruit take? That food take? Well, Galatians 5 is one way to answer that question. Galatians 5 talks about the fruit of the Spirit. What kind of fruit does God want you to produce? The fruit of the Spirit that others can take and eat and be blessed by. 
It's interesting, right before he does that, right before he talks about the fruit of the Spirit, in Galatians 5.15, Paul says, don't bite and devour one another. In other words, don't chew one another up. Don't consume one another. Don't devour one another in the wrong kind of way. Then a few verses later, he lists the fruit of the Spirit. As if to say, don't consume one another. Don't devour one another. Instead, produce good fruit for others to eat. Produce this kind of fruit that you can then offer to others. If you look at the fruit of the Spirit, they really all are communal virtues. They certainly have to do with how we live in private, you could say as well, but they all really carry over to shape the community as a whole. Okay, That's what Israel was to do. Produce nourishing, life-giving, life-sustaining fruit for the nation. In fact, this parable makes it even more specific. Israel was God's vineyard. Israel was to be wine for God and the nations. In fact, the book of Judges says that wine gladdens God's heart. And Psalm 104 says wine gladdens man's heart. Wine brings cheer to man and to God. Wine in Scripture is associated with rest and with refreshment and with Sabbath and with the kingdom, and with joy, and with celebration. Now wine can also become a means of judgment. There are quite a few passages that associate drinking wine the wrong way with staggering and falling in drunkenness. A misuse of wine can bring a stupor. It can be a form of of judgment. It makes you blind. But wine is a way of representing Israel's role for the nations. Israel should have been a source of rest and refreshment and joy for the nations as she shared her love and her truth with others. Now, she could also be an instrument of judgment against the wicked who abused her and attacked her. They would become drunk on the blood of the saints and would stagger and fall to their own doom. But Israel was especially supposed to be a source of rest and refreshment and cheer for the nations all around. But what happens in this parable? What happened in Israel's history? The leaders of Israel wanted to keep all the fruit of the vineyard for themselves. They didn't want to share what they had. They didn't want to share their gifts and their blessings with others. They didn't want to carry these gifts out to the nations. In fact, they didn't even want to give to the master of the vineyard his due. And so they were bad stewards, bad tenants, refusing to pay the rent they owed, refusing to give or share what they were to produce for the sake of others. God rightly expected fruit. He rightly expected wine from Israel. He didn't get it. And when He sent His messengers and even His Son to claim what was His, they beat up those messengers. They killed His Son. And so now what must happen? Because Israel has failed in her purpose, Israel must be judged. The leadership in Israel must be destroyed. Now that finally happens in 70 A.D. when God sends the Romans against Israel and they destroy the temple. And that ends the Old Covenant order centered around Israel and her temple. We'll talk about 70 A.D. and its meaning and its significance in Mark chapter 13 when we get there because Jesus gives a very comprehensive and detailed prophecy of how the temple is going to be destroyed how Israel is going to be brought to an end. But we get a little preview of it here. In fact, it's interesting, if you go on and see how Jesus concludes this in verses 10 and 11, 
he caps off this parable by turning to a psalm. He quotes from Psalm 118, which interestingly is the same psalm the crowds had chanted a few days earlier on Palm Sunday on his triumphal entry into the city of Jerusalem. It's actually why we, uh, throughout the season of Lent, close out our service by singing Psalm 118 because it features so prominently in this whole period of, of, of Jesus' history, Jesus' ministry. What do you have in Psalm 118? Well, it's the same story, but now told in a different kind of way. Psalm 118 tells the same story as the parable. The metaphor shifts. You now have an architectural instead of an agricultural metaphor. You've got a rejected stone instead of a rejected sun, but the point is the same. You've got builders, that's obviously Israel's leadership, especially the priests, who reject the stone, that's obviously Jesus, but then this rejected stone becomes the chief cornerstone in a new temple that God will build in place of the old one. The old temple is going to be torn down, obviously, and a new temple is going to be built on this cornerstone of Jesus. That new temple, of course, is the church. And the psalmist says this is marvelous in our sight. The death and resurrection of Jesus are marvelous in our sight. How He is rejected by the priest, but then reclaimed by His Father. How He is rejected by the old Israel, but then becomes the cornerstone of a new Israel. This is marvelous in our eyes. The death and resurrection of Jesus, the formation of a new temple and a new Israel is truly a marvel. It's a wonder. Now, what does all this mean for us? What does this story mean for us and the psalm that goes with it? Can the church learn from the story of Israel? What can the church learn from the story of Israel? Well, of course we can learn from the story of Israel because the church is in the same story as Israel. The story continues on. The church is the continuation of Israel in new form. The church is just the next chapter in the same story. Oh, sure, the destruction of Israel's temple and leadership in 70 AD is in our rearview mirror. But there are all kinds of lessons for us to learn. Israel becomes a kind of object lesson for the church to learn from, a kind of warning for us to heed. You know, there's the old saying, those who don't learn from history are doomed to repeat it. Well, none of the apostles actually said that, but they could have because that's what they do again and again and again as they use Israel's unfaithfulness to serve as a warning for the church. And indeed, throughout the New Testament, we find the same kind of imagery that Jesus uses here used to describe the church. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, to just give you one example of this, Paul says the church is God's field or God's garden. And pastors are called to be stewards of that field, that garden. They're the gardeners. Pastors are called to plant and to water and to harvest. And of course, the fruit that's born is for God and for the good of the world. We need to ask ourselves, what kind of fruit are we bearing and sharing? What kind of fruit is coming out of our garden, our vineyard? Ask yourself this question. Does the fruit of your life bring rest and refreshment and joy and life to others? Or do you bite and devour others with your complaining and your jealousy and your strife that you bring wherever you go? Do you bite and devour others? Or do you produce good fruit 
for others to eat. You know, the season of Lent is a great time to ask yourself that sort of question. And I think sometimes we think, oh, well, I'll just ask myself this question. But it's easy for us to not be fully honest with yourself. I think sometimes it's better to ask these questions in community. Find somebody else who will be honest with you and ask that kind of question. What kind of fruit am I bearing in my life? Am I biting and devouring others? Or am I producing good fruit that brings life and joy to others? See, there's a very real sense in which we can insert ourselves into this parable of the vine dressers. Jesus has given us a vineyard. We are His vineyard. Pastors and elders are the stewards of that vineyard. And Jesus has gone away. Jesus has gone away into a far country and He's left left pastors and elders in charge of His church. And He expects fruit to be born. Jesus has gone away, but He is coming back. And when He does, He will inspect and collect His fruit. And so your call is to live faithfully and fruitfully in the meantime. And one way to do that, one thing you can learn from the parable here, one way to bear fruit is by not snubbing or rejecting God's messengers, those who bring God's Word to you. But instead, receive their Word. Receive the Word of God as they deliver it to you. you know, churches, The church's gardeners don't look like much. I mean, all they really have to offer are words and water and wine and bread. But these messengers come to make us fruitful. Oh, sometimes they may play a painful role in our lives, pruning us, correcting us, calling us to repentance. That can be painful. But that's only so, as Jesus taught in John 15, the pruning is only so we can bear more fruit. Fruit that will bring God glory. We ought not to think that we can get away with rejecting God's Word and playing fast and loose with sin. The Jews in the parable thought that they could get away with rejecting God's messengers because God never seemed to do anything. You know, several times in our liturgy today, we have talked about how God is slow to anger. Well, God was very slow to get angry with Israel. It seemed like they were just getting away quite literally with murder. God never seemed to judge them. It seemed like He didn't care. Maybe He was indulgent or powerless. Maybe he simply approved of the way things were going. In fact, that seems to be the problem of the tenants, of the vine dressers. They confused God's patience with God's approval. Yes, God is patient. God is long-suffering. God is slow to anger. But He's not going to be patient forever. There is a time when His long-suffering runs out. He's slow to anger, but He does get angry. And the anger of God fell on Israel in 70 A.D. to vindicate His Son and to take vengeance on those who had rejected His Son and the messengers He sent. Paul in Romans 11 takes the whole history of Israel as a kind of warning for the church. He warns the church to not go the way of Israel. Yes, he says, you've been grafted in by faith and those unbelieving Jewish branches have been broken out of the covenant tree. But he says, listen, if the unfaithful Israelites weren't spared, neither will unfaithful Christians be spared. And so Paul says, consider both the kindness and the severity of God. 
Yes, God is patient. But His patience is intended to lead you to repentance. Not to lead you to indulge yourself all the more. Don't think just because lightning doesn't strike every time you sin that you're getting away with it. God is a God of holiness. He is a God of righteousness. We should not let His patience with us feed our presumption. There is a warning here and a call. We must bear fruit. We must be a faithful and fruitful people. And so again, there's the question. What kind of fruit are you bearing and sharing for others and for God? This parable and the psalm that goes with it is a call to fruitfulness. It's a call to repentance. It's a call to remember God's grace. Yes, God is patient and long-suffering. But it's also to remember God's righteous wrath. He is a holy God. And He will not tolerate sin in His people forever. Don't become presumptuous. Hear and heed God's Word delivered to you by His appointed messengers. Now, there's good news in this parable. The good news is that when they killed Jesus, God used their evil to bring about a good result, the good of salvation for all who believe. He's the greater Joseph. His death is not the end of the story. And so there is always grace and always forgiveness to be found in Him, in this sun and this stone. Anything you do, can be forgiven. There's no sin so great that the blood of Jesus can't cover it. But the same blood of Jesus that blots out your sin, that cleanses you from all sin, that same blood purges you of all sin. To trust in Jesus means not only you get His forgiveness, it also means you begin to live a new way. See, those who are given this grace of forgiveness are also given the grace of transformation, the grace of fruit bearing. His forgiveness is for those who fear Him, those who seek to obey Him, those who repent and who bear fruit because they are hearing and heeding and obeying His Word. By God's grace, may this be true of us. May we bear fruit for God's glory and for the good of others. Let's pray together. God, we do thank You for the story of Your grace, the story of Your Son in whom we hope. We know, Father, that Your people of old in ancient times, the Israelites, did reject Your prophets and Your messengers. They did cast Your law behind their backs. They thought they could sin and get away with it. Father, we know that those who oppose You, who oppose Your Word, who oppose Your Son will never win. Help us to be on the winning side, on Jesus' side, by trusting in Him, by seeking forgiveness in Him and through Him, and by seeking to be conformed to His image, by bearing fruit, by bearing good fruit, the fruit of the Spirit that brings You glory and brings good the world all around us. This is our prayer. This is our plea in Christ's name. Amen.